You're listening to another life-transforming message from Awakened Church with campuses in San Diego and Salt Lake City. To find out more about us, go to awakenedchurch.com. So there's going to be some hard truths today straight from the Bible, but I think everybody here would rather get the weaponry and the skills and the truth than just the the nice prepackaged message. And so if you want to get that sort of message, there's plenty of other type of churches and people you can go to, but you're going to feel empowered and you're going to feel equipped. And I know for me, if I ever have some news that is a little unsettling, I want the doctor to tell me straight. I don't want to all of a sudden go to the doctor and have the doctor tell me, well, you know, uh, here's the good news um, that uh, you're still alive. Uh, you know, I, I want to hear what's wrong and what we can do about it, what we've been given to do something about it. And so. I'm going to say something very, some people would consider this controversial, but I don't, which is the churches that refuse to recognize Satan and refuse to recognize the evil one and the one that is in rebellion to God, they are doing the work of Satan in the church. We need to recognize that we are in this battle and this struggle. So Satan is a real thing. It's not imaginary. We need to call Satan by name. Now, Satan hates it when we call Satan by name. Now, in the Bible, Satan is mentioned as a person and always he, not it, not some sort of amorphous figure, not some sort of idea, but, but that had being. Now, that's a hard thing for some Christians to recognize and realize because some, one pastor said to me, Charlie, you know, I don't talk about the spiritual war because that's a little dark. It's a little bit scary. It's a little bit intimidating. I say, well, hold on, it's absolutely scary. I mean, what we're talking about here without the truth of Jesus Christ is overwhelmingly intimidating. Without the truth of Jesus Christ, this is something that I would stay away from. Without the truth of Jesus Christ, this is something that I would just say, we're not prepared to even talk about this. You know, let, let, let's just focus on, you know, what, let's just, you know what, let's just do the yoga thing. Let's just all just kind of, right? That's what I would do without this, right? Find my inner peace, whatever that sort of nonsense that happens. Instead, we need to say what we're really up against here. So here are three truths about Satan. And we're going to get into this. Because, again, so, so few, I talk to Christians at times like, man, that makes me feel uncomfortable. You got to confront it directly. Okay, number one is that Satan is a liar. He is the master of deceit. So now I'm going to take a little bit of a tangent, but a good one. And I want everyone to open up their Bibles right now. John 8, 44. Now, I said that intentionally. Open up your Bibles. For those of you that are looking at your iPhone right now, I love you. I love you. I love you. That's not a Bible. Now, I'm going to take a, I'm, I'm going to take a side note here, a total tangent. And Jurgen might disagree, but that's fine. So, um, which is this, which is I think we got to get back to physical Bibles in the church, okay? We got, and by the way, if you're reading from an iPhone, God bless you. Just maybe you forgot your Bible at home. Happens all the time. It could be a helpful tool. But I'm going to give you five reasons. Total, I, didn't, I didn't come here to talk about this, by the way. But five reasons why we got to get physical Bibles back in the church. Real reasons, okay? Number one, Satan can't distract you at that moment through what you are reading to get you away from reading the Word of the God. So, so if, you're, if you're reading from your iPhone, maybe you have more of the fruit of the Spirit of self-control than me. But... You might be getting that little Instagram direct message. You might be getting a text message. What a time for the evil one to take you outside of the word of God, right? You're basically saying, you know what? Distract me. You're basically saying, you know what? Maybe I should go return that Snapchat. And all of a sudden you're taking the selfie. Like, what was I reading John 1 or what was going on? No, dis you have it. You have, you, you, by definition, this right here 
is how it is. It's unchanging. It is non-disruptible. It, it, it is permanent. Okay, so no distractions. Number two, you develop a unique relationship with the weight and the feel and the touch of that thing. There is nothing else in your life that will have that sort of mass and that touch. Those of you that have really spent time with your Bibles, you know exactly what I'm talking about, right? You know that when you pick it up, you could just close your eyes like, I know what this is, right? Now with your phone, it's not the case because it's more than one thing, right? It's a communication device, it's a camera, it's a GPS system, so it's more than one thing. Again, I'm all for watching sermons, I'm all for listening to podcasts on those, they could be super wonderful. And maybe you need to just get a quick, you know, dose of scripture. I'm talking about your go-to. I'm talking about every time when you get your chair time, and everyone should have at least 20 minutes a day of chair time of reading the word of the Lord. Are you flipping open your iPhone where it's also your, you know, your texting, your, your Netflix watching, or is it something that has a special weight to it? And then almost becomes a, it becomes a weapon, which is the word of the Lord is a sword against the evil one that you could put on it. Third thing. Okay. It's dedicated to just that, as I mentioned, which is it's totally and completely unique. It, it, it is something that it does not, it does not there. So it's, you, have, you have a relationship with the weight and the touch, and there is nothing else you will do with this Bible except connect to the Lord. And that's so important. The fourth thing which I love is that it grows as you grow. You ever see those Bibles with those highlights and those notes, the tears that you cry over those pages? That's beautiful. All of a sudden, you see how, how much you've been transformed by the Word, with the Word. You don't get that with an iPhone. You can maybe like highlight. You ever try to highlight something in the, in the Bible app? It's impossible, right? Whoever, whoever made that should be totally fired, by the way. You can't highlight anything in the Bible app, right? Total waste of time. You don't have to, you have to like double click it, and it's like green, and you're like, what is this? And the font's not right. Like, this has worked for a long time, everybody, okay? And then finally, by the way, total side note, and tam- I mean, again, I-, I get these emails from people, Charlie, I can't believe you went after the digital Bible. It's like, okay, but fine. I'm, the fifth, I-, I just want you to be able to worship the Lord uninterrupted and find his truth. This is it. If this is how they were able to read the truth in 70 AD, it should be satisfactory for us in 2021. There's something with picking up a manuscript and a text that is, I don't have to over-explain it. If that's how they did it back in Jesus' time, we should be able to do it today. And I don't know about you, I look forward and I relish the opportunity to be able to touch something that doesn't change. Because if everything changes, nothing lasts. Remember that, if everything changes, nothing lasts. Okay, those are five, just totally out of, didn't come here to talk about that reasons why. We gotta bring back physical Bibles in the church. Okay, so here at Awaken Church, I hope you guys will lead, will lead that charge. Okay, so let's read out of the Bible, John 8, 44, which Jesus is talking to the Pharisees. And he says, you are of your father the devil, talking to the Pharisees, father the devil, wow because you are not able to listen to my word. You see, Jesus is creating the dividing lines. Christians don't like talking about this. Christians don't like talking about how there's dividing lines, light versus dark, good versus evil. Convenience, corporate Christianity likes to talk about this kind of John Lennon style of Christianity, right? Which is like, there is no war, it's nothing but peace, we all work in harmony, and you know, let's go do psychedelics, or whatever it is, right? Instead, it's like, no, these are dividing lines. Like, you're of the devil, the Pharisees. That's a big statement. You are not, so he has, he was a murderer from the beginning, the devil, murderer from the beginning, and does not stand in truth, because there is no truth in him. When he speaks a lie, he speaks from his own resources, meaning not of the Lord, for he is a liar and the father of it, the father of all lies. So when, have you heard a lie in the last year? I know that everyone's been telling the truth with the virus and masks, <laughs> vaccines, 
No lies, right? We are living in an era of truth. So none of this is applicable, obviously. You start to see where all of this flows from, right? Where we are going to the top of the tributary. Where does all of this come from? The abortions, the vaccines, to the masks, to the lockdowns, the voter fraud, to the corruption, to the insider dealing, to the social media. All of a sudden, we're getting to the real domain that this flows from. Which of you convicts me of sin? And if I tell you the truth, why do you not believe me? He who is of God hears God's words. Therefore, you do not hear because you are not of God. John 8, 44. It's a, it's a beautiful discourse. So let's go through. So J Satan is a liar. That's number one. And when we talk about lies, we have to understand that Jesus was not, just did not, not say truth. He was the embodiment of truth. Everything about him was true. Number two is that Satan is a thief, is that Satan has never built anything. Let me say that again. Satan does not build. He only destroys and he infiltrates, he deconstructs, and he obliterates. So anything that is meaningful, he tries to destroy. He is not a creator. It's not in his nature. In fact, Jesus says this in John 10, 10. He says, the thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I have come that they might have life and to have it in full. What Jesus is saying here is in John 10, 10, is that Satan, by definition, tries to steal from you. This is why Satan hates when we call him out by name. And when you think about a criminal, do, you, do criminals like it when all of a sudden we say, you're stealing that bank? No, the dark, deeds of darkness are o always done under the cover, under the shadow. As soon as we expose the child sex traffickers, as soon as we expose the people that are running guns, we expose the people that are doing murders, they hate that. They want anything but, that's why they run from the police. That's why they try to hide from any sort of exposure. Satan's the same way. Satan hates it when he's called out by name. He hates it when all of a sudden you say, you know what? I see exactly what you're trying to do. You're trying to infiltrate the church. You're trying to turn people against each other. Satan loves it when he's able to sow division between other people. He loves it. He hates harmony. He enjoys discord. He wants to turn people against each other. Satan is a thief. Number three is that Satan, and this is the best news. You say there's good news about Satan. You better believe there's good news about Satan. Satan is limited. Satan is limited. Let me say that again. Satan is limited. In Job 1.6, it says that Satan was roam, roaming the earth. Job was the first book of the Bible ever written. That was actually written. Not that occurred, but was, that was ever written. What would, you, would you roam if you were everywhere? Certain cities have Satan more present than others. Certain counties do. I talked about San Francisco in the service earlier. When I go to San Francisco, I feel a spiritual heaviness the moment I walk into that town, a town that glorifies disobedience and rebellion to the Lord. Now, that doesn't mean that Satan can't come anywhere. That doesn't mean because Satan first and foremost goes where he's invited, obviously. Satan goes where the vectors and the highways have been created. We're going to talk about what those highways are. Now, I'm now going to get, I didn't do this in the first service, so this is unique. I'm now going to all of a sudden show you right now 10 ways that Satan corrupts our language, 10 ways that Satan phrases that we hear, that we tolerate of how Satan is able to come straight into our everyday conversations. 10 ways. Number one, how often have you heard this? What I do doesn't really matter. What I do doesn't make any sort of impact. It doesn't matter how I eat. It doesn't matter who I associate with. This idea that your actions and your agency have no application to what you do, Satan loves that. In fact, this is a saying that's quoted a lot, but it's worth quoting again, is that Satan's greatest trick is convincing you he does not exist. 
He would love to have people believe that it's nothing more than a figment of your imagination. Number two, how often do you hear this? Who cares? Who cares? God cares. Satan wants you to say, who cares? Whatever, who cares? Who cares whether or not, you know, you save yourself for marriage? Who cares? Like, it's not a big deal. Well, all of a sudden, if you're asking who cares, you're basically saying, there's no divine. There's no one in charge. Basically, through your language are one, like, two-liners right there. Who cares? Well, what a wonderful corruption or incredible corruption of language that Satan was able to do. Number three, what difference does it make? We heard that most famously with Hillary Clinton, who was testifying in front of Congress with the four dead Americans in Benghazi. What difference does it make that four people? What, what, what's the big deal, honestly? Human life being lost? It's only a million abortions a year. Do you all of a sudden see how moral relativism becomes more acceptable with the language? Number four, we're all dead in the long run. It's not like we live forever. Well, we actually do live forever as Christians. But how often do you hear, we're all dead in the long run? Your actions doesn't really mean anything. You're just a bunch of cells. You know, it doesn't really, it doesn't apply for you today. Number five, which is my favorite. I'll spend a little bit of time here. Well, you see, Charlie, uh, it's my truth. And I don't care about what you have to say. This is my truth. Now, I hear this all the time on college campuses. And I, 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 I always chuckle when, I, when these people come up and they say, they say, Charlie, you don't know what it's like to be judged by the color of your skin as a white male. I was like, you just judged me by the color of my skin. Like literally in that one statement, you just, you said, I don't know what it's like, which is therefore a judgment. Anyway, the point is that this idea of my truth is everything the devil wants us to believe in. The devil said, I will, five times in Isaiah. I will become the head of the earth. I will become the one I'm most high. I will govern all territory. I will, I will, I will, I will, I will, I will. When you start to say, I have my truth, all of a sudden you say that everyone can have their own direction to be able to govern their life. How often do we hear that? Well, my truth is that I believe that there's no such thing as man versus woman. That does not make it true, though. Your own personal opinion is completely irrelevant to what is true in the world. And we as Christians have tolerated this my truth nonsense for way too long. Now, number six, this is a, this is a hard one for Christians. I'm not going to spend this, this much time on it, but it's if I'm forgiven, then why don't I just sin? A lot, lot of young people say this to me. They say, well, Charlie, I'm forgiven. So if I sin, I could just go kind of use my get out of jail free pass later and just like put it in. That right there makes me question whether you really understand or realize your salvation. This is not a get out of jail free card for you to be able to just kind of ravage the streets and prowl and then all of a sudden when you need it, you're like, um, yeah, I need to kind of, can you, can, you, can you make bail today? Like, uh, that's not how salvation works. It's, it's a transformation and a renewal. Let me be very clear. It's you do not do good things to get saved. You do righteous things because you are saved. Once you are born new, then you want to push goodness into the world. But that's a, that's a devil line, isn't it? Oh, just sin because you say you're saved. Well, all of a sudden, it's questioning whether or not you have that salvation altogether. Number seven, God doesn't care about me. Man, he, how could he let all this suffering happen into the world? How could he let all this terrible and tragedy occur? God doesn't care about me. What a way to all of a sudden start to shrink and to minimalize the world around us. Number eight, which is a very important one. Satan loves victims. Loves it when you start feeling sorry for yourself. He is the author and the master of your pity party. 
The next time all of a sudden you're bitter, he's the one that designed that whole feeling in you. The next time you're like, I'm a victim. I deserve something for how awful of a life I've had. I deserve something because someone said something bad to me. Or I'm a certain skin color. I deserve something because of that. Satan is the designer behind all of that. Instead, you're born new in Jesus Christ and you're a victor over your sin, not a perpetual focusing on this victimhood mentality that, that tears people against each other. Number nine, we'll go back to our real Bibles, right? <laughs> Satan is the chief, the chief author of invalidating the Bible, of deconstructionism. Bible's outdated. Bible doesn't apply. Bible, like, this is written by old people. They, they didn't have TikTok, okay? You realize they didn't have TikTok? You realize they didn't have the internet? How dumb they must have been. They didn't have vaccines. Losers. The truths of the Bible are as true today as they were when they were written. They are eternally true. And let me, let me reiterate this, is that as soon as you start to tear apart the truths of the Bible, then all of a sudden you're going to start to fill those things with worldly things, not wordly things of the word. And so when you pour into the word and you believe it's the word of God, all of a sudden it becomes a guardian for you. But what a great way to start deconstructing it. Because, and, and we were just talking about this backstage. Did you know in 1991, this is according to Pew Research, 71% of all American churches believed the, God, the, word, the word of the Lord, the Bible, was inerrant and perfect. 41% of all churches believe that today in America. You want to know why we have the abortion the vaccine, the school closure, all the stuff we've talked about. Why are all our political issues coming? And the church won't do anything. Bad politics comes from bad theology. Bad politics comes from bad theology. If all of a sudden you think this is nothing more than poor Richard's almanac, if you just think this is kind of a suggestion manual, like, oh, it's no different than uh, the Odyssey. Yeah, it's, it's no different than uh, some sort of allegorical ancient tradition of where we pass down ways to kind of suggestions to live your life. This is Satan trying to debase the bride of Christ, trying to have you question and not have you have faith and follow what is, it always has been true. Number 10, this is, this is probably my favorite on the entire list. I tell this to young people all the time and they don't know, it's like, they, they don't know how to deal with it, which is this nonsense of following your heart. Whoever thought of this garbage of follow your heart? What, why do we ever put up with this? And by the way, I just have to just as a side note, some like of the Christian Pinterest community that posts this like, this like intersection of like Oprah Winfrey style, like Eastern meditative thought and like half of a Bible verse. Like whoever thought this was a good idea? Like fo follow your heart, Jesus once said. Like that's not at all what it's, you follow God's commands is what you do. I mean, what kind of crazy nonsense is this? Follow your heart? Are you kidding me? And we put up with this so often. Well, that's what their heart tells them to do. Okay, well, if we all followed our natural inclination, you know, it's like saying, I have a natural incl inclination towards violence. Yeah, you know, Charlie, uh, he was a little violent. So he was following his heart because his heart tells him, you know. Or, or what, what if the church all of a sudden said, oh, yeah, you know, Steve, he's a serial adulterer, but he's following his heart. You have to understand, his heart is to live monogamously, you know, not monogamously, but, you know, in, in polyamorous relations. Are you serious? Follow your heart? No, we must be obedient to God's commands. We, we, we have to stop tolerating this nonsense that has infiltrated the church. So let me, let me reiterate this with, with the devil. 
he hates this book. And in specifically the two books that he hates the most, Leanne and I were just talking about this, are Genesis and Revelation. The beginning and the end. Genesis describes his devices and Revelation describes his doom. And right there in Genesis 3, we see how the devil works. We see exactly what he does, turning people against each other, sowing doubt, trying to question God's commands, introducing this kind of rebellion against God. Now, who was Satan? There's, there's, there's really no debate about this. Some people infer a lot more about Satan than we really know. And not necessarily all those inferences are outside what the word of the Lord says. I'm not going to get into all that. Here's what we do know. We know that he was an angel that rebelled from the Lord and the earth is his kingdom. I'm going to stop there. That's what we know. Other pastors go on further about some sort of long kind of idea of this discourse between Lucifer and God. That, that's debated. I'll let other people get into that. Here's what we know is that Jesus Christ said that he was the prince of this world. In fact, he was the God of this world. So now let's go back into our Bibles, right? And let's see where the savior of the world actually confronted the devil himself. And we all know this story, but let's really pick this apart and let's, let's go deeper than just kind of like, oh yeah, Jesus Christ resisted temptation. Now we have, to, we have to remember that Jesus the divine became human, right? So he had to go through the exact same things that we went through. So what's the context of this in Matthew 4? Well, right before Matthew 4, it's kind of a crescendo part. It's his anointing. And so, all of you guys at Awaken Conference yesterday? It's amazing, right? Some of you might have felt that that was your anointing, right? And then all of a sudden you go back home, maybe at 11 o'clock, maybe this morning, and all of a sudden these thoughts start to creep in. Man, what, what, I, do, what I do doesn't really matter. No one cares about me. All of a sudden those 10 things start to seep in. Were those Bible verses Jurgen saying actually true? Was the Bible actually the word of God? Boom, right back in there. So what Matthew 4 is telling us is Jesus was baptized in Matthew 3 and anointed, and then right after that temptation comes. So this message right here is perfect timing, right? You have the conference, you get built up, you get sent out in the world, and all of a sudden that's where the temptation's gonna, gonna start seep in. Okay, Matthew 1. Then Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. After fasting for 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. Okay, let me, let me stop here. So, I, I, I under, first of all, with 40 days. So, Noah um, endured the flood for 40 days. Moses fasted for 40 days. Elijah fasted for 40 days. Israelites wandered for 40 years. This number 40 is repetitious about, you know, it, it's a season of, of trusting the Lord and seeing his deliverance. Now, let me just say this. Um, anyone who fasts for more than an afternoon, you, you have some sort of supernatural power I do not have, okay? So... <laughs> If I miss a meal, an energy bar, I'm like, what is this? Get out of here. I mean, I, mean, I, I meet these people that fast. They're like, yeah, I actually, I, I know a guy from Oklahoma. He fasts like 30 days. I'm like, I, I don't even know. It, it's a different stratosphere. I'm, maybe one day I'll get there. I know you guys have people that fast here, and I know you do. And so if, again, Mikey knows this. If I, if I don't get like my energy bar right at the time I need it while I'm hosting my podcast or radio show, I'm like, what is going on here? I go like full third world dictator, right? Like, mobilization of armed forces, go find the people, someone's not doing their job, scorched earth, right? Roll in the tanks, full accountability culture, right? It's like, what's going on? And so, 40 days and 40 nights, like, I can't even just imagine. Now, it says here in the scriptures that he was hungry. That's important because after, you guys know this, after three, four days of fasting, you actually set into a state where you no longer feel hunger, right? But when you start feeling hunger again, you're literally starving to death right? So that's where Jesus was at. He was at the point where after it set in, 
where he was not feeling hunger anymore, he started being hungry again. That's where he was literally starving to death. What does that tell us? The devil, Satan, the serpent's going to attack you when you're most vulnerable. He's going to attack you when you're at your weakest, right? So for me, that's after red-eye flights, right? Whoever invented this whole thing, like they, they, they should be put in prison, okay? And I say that ha- jokingly, okay? But it's like a red-eye flight for me is the worst thing. I, maybe you can sympathize. Some people like it. I, sure. Um, it's like you're, you're two hours of sleep, nothing but masks on you, people breathing. It's like awful. And then you got to land and you got to be ready to go, right? Not for me. And so that's when all of a sudden Satan comes in and all these questions. What you're about to do today doesn't really matter, right? All of a sudden it wears you down when you're at your most vulnerable. And all of you guys know that moment. And it might not be a physical vulnerability, by the way. It might be that you slept in for 14 hours and you're just in the best shape of your life, but it might be that you are just tired of being around the people you're around. It could be other types of vulnerability and other types of weaknesses. The scriptures continue by saying, the tempter came to him and said, if you are the son of God, tell these stones to become bread, mocking him. The devil is a mocker. Now, the devil was missing one of his greatest tricks against Jesus. One of his greatest tricks he was not able to use against against Jesus, which is hold one's sin against them devil wasn't able to do that. It's one of devil's greatest tricks, right? The devil will always stay in your ear about ways you've fallen short. All of us have friends that like this, right? You screwed up in fourth grade and you spilled orange juice over your classmate and you still see this person. You're like, oh, I remember in fourth grade when you spilled orange juice, loser, right? You all know that person. And, it's their, and they're constantly holding your faults and your missteps against you. The devil didn't have his best trick because Jesus never did anything wrong. He lived the perfect life. So instead, he resorted to his second best trick, which is mocking and then temptation of ruling. So come on, you say you're the son of God, turn these stones to bread. He was trying to agitate him. Like you trying to say you're such a tough guy, come on, punch me right here in the face. Trying to provoke Jesus to try to get him and tempt him to engage on the devil's terms. You see, but Jesus refused to even engage on Satan's terms at all whatsoever. Then the devil took him to the holy city, Jerusalem, and had him stand at the highest point of the temple. And he says, come on, if you're the son of God, throw yourself down for it is written. And this is where it gets interesting. Satan is quoting scripture. I want you to think about that. He is quoting this perfect book. He's trying to use scripture against, come on, you say you're so powerful. I know your book too. And that's why you have to be alert and filled with the Holy Spirit. Where all of a sudden you might have false prophets. You might have people that are up that are trying to all of a sudden use things that you've memorized, committed to memory to try to pursue worldly things. Where all of a sudden people say, you know what, Jesus was all about love, then why wouldn't you say that pedophilia is okay? Now that might sound extreme, that argument is coming soon, I guarantee it. In fact, it's coming here to California. That, that's exactly what's happening here, is that Satan was trying to use Jesus' own literacy with the scriptures against him. He will command his angels concerning you, so they will lift you up in their hands so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. Jesus answered him, it is also written, do not put the Lord your God to the test. Jesus is laying it down. like. You don't want this fight. We are going to crush you, is what Jesus is saying. Like, don't put me to the test. You're not going to like this. I'm going to win and you're going to lose. But the devil, like every single person that has the spirit of the devil on earth, they never know when to stop. They never know when to, they they do not have the fruit of the spirit of self-control, constantly pushing, constantly trying to conquer, trying to do more than they actually can do. Jesus answered him, do not put your Lord to the test. Again, the devil took him to another mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their splendor. And this I will give to you if you will bow down and worship me. Now, Jesus rebukes him in the next verse, but do you notice what's not here in Matthew, 1, in Matthew 4, 1 through 11? Jesus never questions what Satan says. 
He never says what Satan is saying is untrue. He's like, you know what? You do run this earth. This is your kingdom. Jesus never says, no, 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 no. This is mine, not yours. Jesus basically is like, you know what? This is, this is your enemy-occupied territory. And so Jesus in human, human form was going through the same sort of temptation that we go through every single day. So you know what Satan was doing? World of all their splendor. Come on up here. I'll go make you famous. I'll put you in a Netflix series. I'll make you a billionaire. You'll get a private jet and a yacht. People will love you. You'll get five million Instagram followers. You'll have songs written about you. How about statues as well? You can go to space. What is it with these like billionaires' weird pathological focus of going? It's a really creepy, honestly. I think I know what it is. It's because they do not believe in the divine, so they themselves want to become divine. So the only thing they have not yet controlled and conquered is the heavens, and they're never going to control the heavens or the cosmos. I mean, today they launched off. I'm sure he's a good guy or whatever, but there's this weird push to always trying to conquer things that have not yet been conquered. No, they do not understand limitations on human beings. And Jesus said to him, and every single person can commit this to memory, then we're going to get into the application of all these texts. Away from me, Satan. Away from me, Satan. For it is written, worship the Lord your God and serve him only. And then the mic drop that I think some people here today are waiting for this because I'm sure you feel the spiritual heaviness. You feel this in our country, right? And you're like, man, just get out of my head. Get out of my head. Then the devil left him. Let me say that again. Then the devil left him. You know why? because he's limited. Because the devil was worn out and the devil's like, fine, I'm gonna go you know, to Persia, see you later, whatever, right? I'm gonna go find some weird corrupt king in Thailand that I can go like whisper in the ear of, right? You know, the Aztecs, they do child sacrifice, I'm going over there, whatever, right? Like this guy Christ can't get in his head, the angels come and tend to him. The point is that there are limitations to his power. So if you're going through a moment right now where you feel like Satan is harassing you, it will not last forever. Let me say it again. It will not last forever. Let me say it again. It will not last forever. So now let's talk about how does Satan actually get penetration in your mind? Because that's where this is happening, right? Now the, the scriptures promise us a sound mind. But we have to understand that sometimes we make the entry points, we make the ability for Satan to take, we, we do his work for him. In fact, we build the on-ramps for him sometimes. We're basically like, you know what, let me construct a special exit where you can just come straight into my consciousness. And sometimes we do this without realizing it. And so first we, we must realize what the scriptures tell us about how Satan acts. Be alert and of sober mind, alert. I feel as if this church is an alert church. You're aware of what's happening in your school boards. You're aware of what's happening with all the things around you. An alert church is a church that is contesting for the kingdom. Now, alert and of sober mind. Those are, the sober mind is a different, you know, different message for a different time. But your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. Resist him, standing firm in faith, because you know that the family of believers throughout the world is undergoing the same kind of sufferings. Don't feel sorry for yourself if Satan's harassing you. If your fellow believers don't always talk about it, they also are harassed at some point. They're also hearing those negative thoughts, those 10 things that are happening, and they are constantly under attack. So how does Satan get penetration into your mind? There are three ways. This is, this is what the Bible tells us. Both in James and in Matthew, it was written by James and said by Jesus, was this idea that I never thought about very much. And then a really, really wise pastor walked me through the significance of how we create 
these vectors for Satan to come into our own life, which is number one, is by vows. That's what Satan did. I will, I will, I will, I will, I will, five times. Now, vows, earthly vows, that they're of the world. They, but we do this all the time. I'm never going to take a drink again. I'm not going to visit this website. I'm stronger than this. I'm going to stop gossiping. How many times do we fall short? All the time. Do you know why? As soon as we write that vow and Jesus said, let your yes be yes and your no be no, no, be no and then the rest come through Jesus Christ. Why is that? As soon as you say that, Satan's like, ah, now I got a reference point to harass you with. You think you're so strong? You think you can endure it? I'm going to taunt you with this. You see, you wrote right here that you're not going to go to this website. You wrote right here that you're not going to go into credit card debt. You wrote right here that you're like, you're, I'm going to harass you with it. And most times we fail. Because the way we're actually instructed to do it is the exact opposite. It's not that I will, I will, I will, I will, I will. It's Jesus did. Jesus is. And he's the, he is the chairman of the board of my life. And he will protect you at that moment. It's totally different. Let me be clear. Every person in this room will lose on your own against Satan. Every single person, myself included. You're, I'm not telling you you have to fight this war. We're in the midst of this war, and some of us are trying to fight it for ourselves, right? And sometimes we go to earthly means to do this, right? We go to yoga class. We try, like, all these different substances. All I'm saying is you keep on going into the earth to try to defeat the king of the earth, which is Satan, you're going to lose. So instead, you just got to step out of the way. And you just got to worship and say, Jesus, can you just take care of this, please? Can you just come in here and slay this for me and take care of this for me and win this battle for me? That's what you got to do. And he will never, ever forsake you or abandon you. Now, so vows are the first way. And that's not to say that you shouldn't identify your sin. That's not to why I say you shouldn't identify where you're falling. But if you one Christian said to me once, he said, you know, I am a master of self-control. And one thing I don't think the Bible talks about enough is my ability to conquer my own, you know, my own devices. I say, self-control, that's interesting. Where do you think you get self-control from? And I say, I also want to tell you about humility. Um, like, that would be another one. I, I, it's so funny. He's like, oh, yeah, no, I'm, I'm, this, this, this guy's all right. He's, he's, the, the Lord transforms all people. This person would definitely be a evidence of that. And so... He'd always be like, yes, you know, I'm so handsome, creative, generous, successful, benevolent, and forward-thinking. Never ever talks about how humble I am. You know, I'm like, yeah, okay, great. The point is that, where do you think you get self-control from? It's a fruit of the Spirit. We don't talk about that one as much, right? Patience, I need that one. Oh, my goodness, with what I have to do, geez. Goodness, kindness, graciousness, but then self-control. That's, that's not of your own devices. That is a gift from the Lord. That is the Spirit filling you. And so vows is number one. Number two is your environment. Satan gets an on-ramp based on who you surround yourself with, the music you listen to, and what your environment is. And Jesus proved it. Jesus said, if it causes you to sin, cut off your arm. Get rid of it. Make your environment reflective of the type of worship you want to engage in. Now, psychology tells us this, and you should all do this tonight. Write down the five people you spend the most time with, because that's who you are. You become the moving average of the five people you spend the most time with. Do you notice you start saying one-liners, the kind of the five people you start spending time with? Do you notice you kind of start like dressing? Yeah, I kind of see that around here at this church, so. <laughs> that's fine, you guys dress great. I'm not as cool as them, right? So I just kind of threw this together. I figured if I, I figured that if I did the, uh, if I did the, you know, when I speak at Baptist churches, it's three-piece suit, right, full tie, Right? You, by the way, there is this, you know, the idea of worship is like, like that, that's like feeling the Holy Spirit. 
I'm kidding, I love them, it's great. And so I speak, I speak at all sorts of different type of churches. It's actually nice because I'm able to move around. But if I ever left the box of this, like it might have screwed up all the energy, right? Um, but you become who you spend the most amount of time with, right? And so you ask yourself, am I spending people, am, am I around gossipers? Gossip is terrible, I can't stand it. Am I around people that are constantly trying to bring down others? Am I around people that are always telling half-truths, late to meetings, kind of sending text messages that are always on the end? Am I around people that are kind of talking about superficial material stuff? Am I around people that are kind of putting points on the board of how rich they are, how big their, you know, how fast their cars are, how many vacations they take, or talking about deeper and more meaningful things? Am I around people that are filled with scorn and bitterness and revenge and anger on people that are filled with peace and love. Your environment is one of the ways that Satan finds an on-ramp. And including your music, too. For me, in the work that I do, I've cut out almost all secular music. And by the way, I'm not saying that if you listen to secular music, you're a bad person. But for me, music is one of the ways that I really am able to kind of get incantations of truth. I'm like, you know what? I just need to listen to praise music and scripture music. Too much going on. I'm not going to be able to handle all this other stuff. And for young people in particular, that's important. Same thing for, and we all know this, there's a television show, a movie, a comedian, a YouTube series that all of us could identify right now that is an on-ramp for Satan. All of us. We could all, we could all pick one, right? One, one of those things where all of a sudden you're like, yeah, you know, that, that puts me in kind of a little bit of a state of disobedience to the Lord. And that's not to say you can't have any fun. That's not to say that you have to always just kind of shield yourself at all times from everything always out there. But just ask God for wisdom. I'll give it to you generously in James 1.5. But I, you, guys, you know exactly those types of those things that you have to remove from your life for those on-ramps for Satan. The third thing, and this is an important one, which I think that this church does a good job of, but the general American corporate Christianity does not do a good enough job of, because they're afraid people are just going to walk out of, which is Satan loves to seize on unrepented sin, especially sexual sin and sin of the flesh, which is sins of the flesh is where Satan is the master, right? Where it be sins of things you can touch and you can feel. And remember, Satan loves to hold that against you, right? The serpent in the grass loves to say like, man, your, your failure time and time again shows that you, should, you might as well just give it up and just get drunk every single night. He wants to bring you down by how awful and terrible that, that you believe you are. But you know what's amazing? Is that once Jesus Christ forgives your sin at that moment, he will never mention that sin to you again. He will never hold that against you. He will never say that you are anything but a son of his and that you are born into eternity. It is, ne- it is wiped clean. And so the devil isn't like that. The devil will hold that fourth grade blunder of spilling orange juice on your friend against you. That becomes your identity. And you'll never get past that. And he uses it as a means of control, as a way to keep you in a perpetual open air prison sentence. And so in 1,000 times in the Old Testament is repentance. 1,000 times. I think that the church has to get more serious about repentance. I think that we have to get more serious about repenting our own sin and things we've done wrong. It doesn't have to be done publicly, but, it, but repentance is some of the most, it's, it's so freeing and it's liberating and it closes off the on-ramps. Because you remember, Satan is the master of lies. Are you lying to yourself about a sin that you're committing? Are you lying to yourself about a pattern that you're in that you know deep down is not good for you, but then all of a sudden you kind of do the justification thing? Yeah, I mean, it's, it's fine that I get drunk every single night. I provide for the family and like, it's whatever right? It's not a big deal. It's okay that I swear all the time or I gossip because I'm a good person. 
Are you kind of in that moral justification range? You're like, God, man, I, I, I need your mercy and your grace. I'm not even close to where I need to be right now. Satan doesn't like that. As soon as you repent, you are building a wall that makes it harder for Satan to take seize of your mind and to capture where you are. So now let's talk about, in closing, I'm going to go a little over time, just a little bit, not a lot. How do we counter it? What can we do? So those are three ways Satan takes hold of our mind in this spiritual war. And what, what else can we do to actually be able to achieve a peace of mind and a sound mind? And I want to just reiterate our goal. Then the devil left him. How many of you right now would love to have that happen for you right now? I'm sure there, there are seasons, right? There are seasons where we feel more at peace than others. There's season, because that Satan is not constant, right? But God is constant. So a couple things of how we can counter it, which is number one is prayer. This church is a great prayer church. In fact, I want to compliment you and encourage you. You are a phenomenal prayer church, and you need to do more of it and continue to do what you're doing. Because again, if, if we do not get in this position of vulnerable prayer, of letting the Lord just capture who you are and your spirit, then we're always going to be bonded to the earth. Now, my favorite prayer in the entire Bible is three words. It was said by one of the women that Jesus healed, and it was very simple. Lord, help me. Lord, help me. That's it. Now, let me be very clear. Your prayers must be sincere. They do not have to be sophisticated. You do not have to write a doctoral thesis submitted to Stanford with citations and footnotes of all the different biblical citations. It has to be just, Lord, help me. Lord, help me. And that, that's, that sort of sincere, broken down prayer is exactly one of the ways that we counter this onslaught of spiritual warfare. Number two is dig into the Word and know it is the Word of God. And this right here is a USB drive waiting to be inputted and downloaded into your operating system to protect you from the ransomware and malware attacks against the enemy. It's waiting for you. It says, please download it. Please. It's waiting for you just to download it. Because as soon as you do, you start memorizing scripture, you're filled with the word, all of a sudden you're like, oh, I know what's happening here. You start to understand the terrain of which this battle is being fought on. Then number three, which is very, very important, which is James 4, 7. Submit yourselves then to God and resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Not that he will walk away. Not that he'll just kind of like, okay, what a flee. Whoa, when you flee, you're in danger. That means submission to the Lord, obedience to his commands. He flees and he runs. Adios, Satan. Have a nice day. Like, gets out. Now, understand, you are not, again, you are not going to be able to do this, but submission and obedience to the Lord. Follow his commands. You are going to fall short. But here's my one challenge to you. In the next day or two days, can you try your best, and you're going to fail at this, we all will, to try to make your sins accidental sins, to try to make your sins missteps, not deliberate, pre-planned, and purchased sins. What do I mean by that? Like, for example, if you all of a sudden have your buddies together, and you're like, hey, we're going to go on a trip, we're going to visit a strip club, we're going to get really drunk, and you plan it out, that is pre-planned, that is just like, but all of a sudden, if you're doing something, and you have a thought, and you missed up, those are accidental, those are understandable. The point is, don't build those on-ramps. Try your best to be obedient to the Lord in every single capacity. And then the last thing is this, which is the best news of all, and then I'm going to talk about an earthly example of what we need to do right here in this moment, which is, despite what the devil might be telling you, 
despite what those thoughts might be weighing down on you, we are promised victory. This is why Satan hates the book of Revelation. He will be thrown into the lake of fire and he will burn forever. That's his destiny. The harasser, the tormentor, the liar, the serpent, the mocker, he will be thrown into the lake of fire. That battle is over and it is done. We are simply just temporary physical manifestations of that spiritual war. The scriptures say very clearly that, that, but the Lord is faithful and he will strengthen you and protect you from the evil one. It says in John 16, 33, I have told you these things that you may have peace. But then all of a sudden there's a part of the scriptures that we don't talk about. In this world you will have trouble. In this world you will have trouble. In this world you will have trouble. Jesus is saying you're going to have trouble. If you think it's unique that you're being harassed right now by the evil one, it's not unique. He said you're going to have trouble. But then Jesus says, but take heart, I've overcome the world. Take heart, I've overcome the current governor, mayor, president of this earth that's called, say, I've overcome all of that. And now I'm going to close on what we have to do right now. Because we not just have to pray and repent and read, but we have to be aggressive and offensive to launch a counteroffensive against what Satan has done here. Which may, and some, some people here today might say, Charlie, this message doesn't really apply to me. Charlie, I don't quite get it. And you know what? Maybe it's because you've already been doing all these things and you've been walking in obedience. Or maybe you're not taking enough terrain and Satan doesn't deem you a threat. Not every person is harassed equally. Not every person is harassed equally because he's got limited resources. And the people that are harassed the most are the ones that are taking the most ground. If you're not harassed, maybe you've mastered all this and I got a lot to learn from you. Or maybe this is a reason for you to get more in the fight and go take more terrain from the enemy. So let me close with this. Only two minutes over time. Let me close with this. The type of counteroffensive that we need to launch can best be metaphorically depicted in World War II at a certain moment. World War II, I believe, was one of our nation's greatest moments, where we sent hundreds of thousands of our own citizens to never fight on our own land or our own soil, but for the betterment and for the good of the world and for other nations. Outside of Pearl Harbor, no part of World War II was fought on our, on our own shores, and that was preempted against us. And so, what, after D-Day, allied forces of the French and the British, Canadians and Americans, we were on the march. We were liberating French town after French town. I'm sure this church has felt on the march at some time, right? Building auditoriums. Look how around you, how blessed, how blessed you are. It's unbelievable. Winning souls for Christ. You have force equals mass times acceleration is momentum, right? Where you have mass and you are moving fast. We all know a season where we have momentum. That's what was happening right after we won on D-Day. The bad guys, the National Socialist Worker Party, they were on defense. They were losing town after town after town after town. In fact, it looked as if victory was inevitable. We were heading into the winter. It looked like no way are they not going to wave the surrender flag. George Patton was so confident of this, he went to Paris just to kind of go enjoy Paris because we liberated Paris. But evil hates it when they get put on defense. Evil, as soon there's going to be a moment where all of a sudden the Allied forces thought they were going to enjoy Christmas. Allied forces thought they were going to be able to enjoy Belgium and, and Northeast France and just have a nice little chance to take a breath and maybe not have to lose their friends or lose their loved ones. But then the most unexpected, all-out counteroffensive from the enemy towards the good guys occurred in the Ardennes, 
Forest, which is known as the Battle of the Bulge. Outnumbered 10 to 1, full-out blitzkrieg. The leader, who I refuse to say his evil name, of the National Socialist Workers' Party, who might be the closest to the devil incarnate that we can look at in the next 100 years, who basically satisfied every single one of those things that executed a plan and methodical mass and mechanized murder of a certain type of people and also God's chosen people, hated it when he got put on defense, hated it when all of a sudden terrain was taken. He said, that's it. I'm going to try to take every single one of them down with me. His generals thought he was nuts. Now, remember, a sound mind is not something that is a characteristic of Satan. He said, I don't care. Go after the Ardennes. We're going to go retake the port city in Belgium. We're going to turn the course of the war. They will never take Germany. American forces were put on defense. They were put on their heels. I'm sure a lot of you feel this way right now where all of a sudden it's under attack, under attack, and even though you know you're going to win, it's really awful. So they knew they were going to win. They knew that it wasn't a matter of whether or not victory was there. It was, why are you harassing me? Why are you killing my friends? Why are all of a sudden you're bombing us? And they said, we're not sure what's, we, we just want to win this war because we know victory is inevitable, but it feels like hell. It was cloudy, therefore no ability to bomb the enemy forces was possible. And it was an awful weeks long struggle. And then when all of a sudden hope was kind of lost of just kind of this trench warfare setting in and the Germans were picking off allied forces, they woke up one day and it was one of the clearest days you could possibly imagine. And the allied forces bombers couldn't believe their eyes. For 45 miles, they saw every single German tank, artillery, piece of equipment and troop lined up on a road for 45 miles, totally and completely exposed. And that cloudiness was broke through and the Allied forces destroyed almost every single piece of German machinery. And out of there broke exactly what you are about to experience because they knew victory is inevitable and they were crushed and they were defeated. What I'm getting at right now is that the enemy is always gonna try to be launched in these all out campaigns, but victory is ours. We are promised that of a sound mind. We are promised that in the scriptures that we are born new. Remember, he is a liar, he is deceitful, he is treacherous, he's a serpent. He might be the king of this world, but he'll be thrown into the lake of fire. If we are serious about saving America and serious about saving our republic, we must now launch that counter offensive against that long 45 mile train of evil forces and we are going to win. God bless you guys. Thank you so much. Thanks for listening. To find out more about our locations, team, and what we do here at Awakened Church, go to awakenedchurch.com.